Hello and welcome, listeners, to a new conversation about software engineering. This is Stefan Tilkow. Today on the Case Podcast, I'm talking to Jen Simmons about modern CSS. Jen is a designer advocate at Mozilla, where she spends her time researching, writing, and speaking at conferences. She also hosts and produces the awesome Web Ahead podcast. Jen, welcome to the show. Hi. So our topic today is CSS, which is a little bit unusual of a topic for, for this show. Um, because we typically cover hardcore programmer topics and people don't necessarily uh, believe CSS is one of those. So um, maybe we'll have to do a bit more explaining today than we, than we typically do. So can you briefly describe what CSS role is, CSS's role is in the browser architecture, the browser stack? Yeah. So it's funny you say, you know, people don't think of CSS as a hardcore programming language. Um, I think we're going to get into that. Like, is that really... <laughs> true or not or what does hardcore programming language mean you know css basically when you go to make a website or a web application as people web app is the cool new term for basically a website uh that does more things than a website say did 10 years ago um you have a, a It's a whole stack of technology that you're using, right? You get the HTTP connection, you get the URL, you get the, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, but also you've got HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Hopefully you have all three, although you don't need JavaScript. Uh, you can leave that off. If you don't, if you're not doing anything with it, you should leave it off. But you definitely need HTML. That's the core, that's the heart of, of, a, of every web page. And you need uh, probably CSS. If, if, you're, if you like Georgia, Uh, on a white background with blue links, then you don't need any CSS. <laughs> But if you want your website to look any different than the sort of defaults that the browser has, uh, which make the web look like 1994, um, then you need CSS. CSS, the job of CSS, its role, is to provide all the styles. It stands for cascading style sheets. And it's about making things look a certain way. Uh, you can also do animation. So, you know, it's not always static the way things appear. They can move or change over time as well um you know and, and as you as a person interacts with the website as your user interacts with your website then uh you can have different things happen or at different screen sizes you can have different things happen um so it's it's powerful i feel like you know how many programming languages are used basically every single solitary time there's not many and css is one of those mm -hmm. so what makes it different from other programming languages then Well, for one, it's declarative, right? And this is probably where a lot of people think, ah, that's not a real programming language. That's a, just, you know, it's, it's a, because you're just declaring things. You're not, um, it doesn't run. It's not procedural. It doesn't, you're not, you know, writing a bunch of if statements or you're just saying, hey, take this thing on the page and make it look like this. Um, take this headline and put it in this type, this font. Take this link and make it this color. Take this box and give it a background of this color and a border of that color. Um, take this item and when someone hovers over it, I want you to move it across the page from this place to that place. Um, and that sounds weak, uh, but it's not weak. I mean, it's really quite uh, powerful and important. And But from a, you know, I guess from a programming point of view, declarative is fairly... Um, You know, it's not that hard to learn in a way. You've got a, a some sort of selector that's written down. Usually it's a class or, you know, maybe it's an ID or maybe it's a, the element itself. But there's a handful of ways to do it. You basically need to target which part of the page are you talking about at this moment. So that's called a selector. Then you open one of those curly brackets and then you write down a property. There's a whole bunch of properties. You pick the property and then you define the value for that property. So you say, I want my background to have the color of blue or more likely a hexadecimal number or a RGB, RGBA number. Um, and then the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, you're just declaring them. And then you close the curly bracket and you're done. If you understand that syntax, uh, then you understand all the syntax of CSS. So what about the cascading part? Yeah, so the cascade is... Um, You know, it gets comp. I mean, I make it sound super simple, but of course, it gets super complicated. Uh, the cascade is about what happens if you say two things at once, right? So, what if you say, uh, you know, I want all my links to be red, and then further down on the page, you say, I want all my links to be blue. 
in a way, you're contradicting yourself. And the computer simply says, I'll take the second one. But maybe at the top you say, I want all my links to be red, which is a terrible color. But I want all my links to be this particular shade of uh, a creamy blue color. <laughs> and then further down, you say, I want all the links that are inside this particular kind of box to be green. Uh, and then it will in general, make all the links blue. Is that the color? Is it blue? And then in that particular context, in that particular place where you're inside that certain box, it is um, going to make them green. So that second context is where things are more specific. So probably you put at the top, you just put A, which is the syntax for this. Uh, here's the color or A colon link. Here's the color. And then further down, you said dot special box, which is the class special box. A link, A colon link, make it green. Um, and so you, it's a very important, and I think this is where people get frustrated or they get confused. It's very important to understand how the cascade works and how exactly, uh, you know, when you use an element or when you use a class or when you use an ID, how there, there's math being done by the browser to make a calculation of which is more specific. If they tie in specificity, then the second one comes gets the priority. So you can basically override yourself. But if, but something further up in the page earlier in the cascade can easily override something that comes later by being more specific. And so there's the math on that. There's, you know, elements get a certain number basically in the calculation. Classes get a certain number. IDs get a certain number. Like IDs, you could put, um, I don't know if it's called hash or pound, how people want to say it, but, uh, pound, um, you know, sidebar, if you're, if you put an ID of sidebar, you know, on your sidebar element, maybe you have a, a side HTML element. And in that element, you give that element an ID of sidebar. Uh, and then you put sidebar, blah, blah, blah. Well, that hash sidebar is worth 10 times as much as a class. So you would actually need to have 10 classes in order to tie with one ID. Um, and I think people get frustrated and confused by that because they think, look, I've got this ID and I've got this class and the class is coming later. Why is the class not overriding the ID? It's like, well, because the class is 10 times as powerful as the ID. Um, and there's other particulars about the way the cascade works that's important for people to go learn if they're writing CSS. Because, again, it's not that complicated, but if you don't know that that is happening, it's very confusing. And once you know that that's happening and you go read up the, you know, you go look it up, read one or two blog posts about it. Uh, maybe write, print out a little cheat sheet and put it next to your computer for a couple months until you have it memorized. Um, then it's fairly simple. It's very obvious what's happening and why one thing is overriding another. Uh, and you, then you use that to your advantage. You want things to override each other. You're going to have a bunch of CSS. You're going to want to write a lot of it in a very general way. And then you're going to want to get more specific in certain contexts and certain situations and override those general principles, those general rules that you wrote. So understanding how to manipulate the cascade is a key skill to have in order to write CSS. Mm -hmm. So... How do you think? How do you think that is related to the fact that so many software developers uh, actually hate CSS? I mean, it's not as if they don't only not only consider it to be, um, you know, weak and not a real programming language. They also really despise it. It's not not something they want to use. Why is that? Yeah, I, I, you know, I have my quick ranty answers that I might give out at a standing in a after party at a conference or something. But <laughs> but I do ask myself that question you know, in a quieter time and try to really understand, like, why it is such a visceral response that a lot of people have to CSS, and why do they hate it? Um, and I think that, um, I, I think that there's, a, I mean, of course, there's a bunch of reasons. I think part of it is that a lot of people who have taken the time and put the effort into learning computer science programming. Maybe they have a PhD, they went to school, they have some kind of good degree. It's really important. Uh, along the way, I doubt that they had a class where they learned CSS. I, I don't see CSS being taught in those kinds of programs. And I think it's because it's a declarative language, it's different than a lot of the languages that people learn. And frequently, you know, if you put seven years and a hundred thousand dollars into learning computer science and you come out and there's something that you've never heard of and 
people tell you it's easy, but every time you ever try to write a few lines of it, it doesn't work the way you think it's supposed to work, then that's going to make you hate it. (laughs) Uh, And I wonder how much of the frustration really is is just that. Uh, And if computer science programs would teach CSS, you know, in the second class that everybody takes, um, maybe a lot more people would find it very interesting and powerful and fun and easy and not a big deal at all. Um, I think that's one thing. I also think that people, um, there is something beautiful about programming where the procedural languages you, it's, I mean, when I started learning them and I started learning, like, what was it? Fortran and Turbo Pascal, um, it was fun to program a database application in Turbo Pascal. It was, there was something very, uh, you know, like you're imagining these little creatures running around in the machine following your commands and doing what you want. And, and they show back up with like answers. Um, and I almost imagine it as like little mice running around in the walls and coming. <laughs> probably because I learned, I learned Turbo Pascal about the same time I was reading, um, you know, kids books like, about Ralph the mouse and things, you know, like there's something kind of fun about the little tiny people who live in the walls or little tiny creatures who come and do magical things for you. And, and somehow programming is, is a bit like that. Procedural programming feels like that. And to me, I guess CSS feels a bit more like, um, like there's nobody there, there. It's just, it's like hanging clothes on a laundry line or something. You're just, you're just putting things out there and that's how you want them to be. Um, it doesn't quite have that spark of magic that a procedural language has. And, uh, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's different. It's declarative. <laughs> and, and the good thing, the, the great thing, the really powerful thing about declarative languages that I think um, engineers could really appreciate is how forgiving they are. If you make a mistake in CSS, if you leave off a semicolon or you misspell a word, you mean to say border, but you actually put another letter in there and it's misspelled, um, the the browser will start to parse that file and it will hit the line that it doesn't understand because it's either maybe it's brand new CSS that it's never seen before. It's an old browser. It's never seen this new CSS. Or it's simply a mistake. You left off a semicolon or you... You know, you wrote your your class selector in such a way you you thought it would be an underscore, but actually it's a dash and you put the wrong thing. Um, It just ignores that one line of code and it skips to the next line and it parses the next line and it keeps going. Uh, And in a procedural programming language, it doesn't do that, (laughs) Uh, which you don't want it to do that. You know, JavaScript doesn't do that. If JavaScript hits a command it doesn't understand, it stops and it says, I, I don't know what to do here. You were defining a variable, and then you were about to tell me to do something with that variable, and I don't understand the syntax of that line, so I'm just going to stop and make you fix this. Because otherwise, I don't know what to do. I might guess, and I'm going to guess completely wrong what it is that you want me to do now. Because of the nature of a procedural language. Where with a declarative language, really everything that you write in CSS is a suggestion. You're saying, I would like my font to be 17 pixels tall. Or big, but if for some reason it's it, you know perhaps the person who's using the website, who's using that browser, who's going to your website, they don't like their text at 17 pixels. Maybe it's way too small for them, and they've told the browser to make it much bigger. The browser's going to do what the user asked them to do before it's going to do what the person who made the website asked them to do. So all of the things that you write in CSS are suggestions. They're suggestions that you know 90% of the time, 99% of the time are followed, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes uh, you know CSS hits something it doesn't understand. You have a mistake in your code, or it's a new thing or the, the user overrode everything and said I can't read white on uh, black text on white so I've used a special browser that's making everything be light colored text and dark backgrounds or whatever lots of things can happen uh, yeah. so th- so the uh, the declarative language is forgiving the declarative language is basically says hey I know you want me to do this thing but uh, I can't so we're just gonna go we're just I'm just gonna do my best I'm gonna do part of it and we're gonna move on I'm still going to display this web page. I'm still going to give everybody all the other stuff that you asked for. I'm still going to uh, make this experience usable. If it's a banking website, the people can still use their bank account. If it's a airline booking website, they can still book their tickets to buy their airline ticket. Like it, the fact that the link isn't the exact shade of blue that you wanted is not a good reason to not let people buy an airline ticket, right? 
Mm-hmm. So in that way, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a, it's good. It was, it was intentionally architected like this by really brilliant people. It was, this is not a baby language because people who are dumb, who invented the web were dumb and didn't know what to do. Like it was, <laughs> it was architected like this on purpose. It was made to be declarative so that it could be forgiving so that it would work and deliver the best experience all the time, even under conditions that are not ideal, even under conditions where everything's a little bit off, a little bit broken, a little bit crazy. Is that part of the reason why you, why you, in the introduction, mentioned that JavaScript is an optional component? Do you, would you prefer that there be less built in JavaScript and more in HTML and CSS? I think JavaScript is amazing. I think it does things that are part of the nature of the web itself. And I think when people 50 years from now, 100 years from now, look back on websites from this era, or especially from 10 years ago, they're going to think, wow, those websites aren't even really what the web is. The web became, you know, it's like people who, we look at films now, and then if you look back at films that were created before sound, film and sound was invented, you know, the, the silent film era, you're like, that's nice, those silent films, but that's not really what film is. Film is really this other thing. I feel like JavaScript is opening up parts of the web and making it possible to make websites in a certain way that you wouldn't be able to do without JavaScript. It's, it is part of the nature of the medium itself. But what I want is I want people to use JavaScript for what JavaScript should be used for. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to use JavaScript for things that you should and could instead use HTML or instead use CSS for. I think um, great software engineering is about understanding your tools and knowing which tool to use at which moment and to understand why one tool is good at one thing and the other tool is good at something else. You know, if you need a screwdriver, use a screwdriver. If you need a hammer, use a hammer. Hammers are great. Just because screwdrivers exist doesn't mean hammers aren't a good idea. But you don't want to use a hammer to do something you would, you should be using a screwdriver to do, right? Like, so HTML has its place. CSS has its place. And there is a movement right now, it feels, where people who don't understand CSS, who don't, haven't taken the time to learn HTML, uh, they want to get rid of those two parts of the stack. And they just want to use only JavaScript. And they have to use some sort of HTML, so they're using divs and spans for everything, or maybe links. But they're not using button, they're not using form elements properly, they're not using aside and definition lists and all of the other things that are in HTML. Uh, they're just using divs and spans and maybe links. And then you've got people who think that CSS is terrible and they don't want to write style sheets. So they're basically taking all the things that CSS would be doing. They're taking the CSS syntax itself and they're putting it inside JavaScript and getting JavaScript to deliver all the CSS as separate tiny little commands scattered throughout the markup rather than in, it, in proper style sheets. And uh, those are terrible ideas, terrible ideas. Hmm. And they make a website incredibly brittle and fragile. And the moment that anything fails at all, the whole website fails. Uh, and there's no reason for that. That's a, that's a bad idea. There's, the web was built to be incredibly resilient under crazy conditions. It, you, you can build a website that will work on Every computer out there that's every popular computer out there, um, every, you know, maybe not some sort of supercomputer off in the corner that nobody knows about, but every popular operating system that regular humans buy these days, you can walk into any electronic store anywhere. And if it's got a connection to the web and a web browser, it's going to read your website. Um, you, phones and game console browsers and tablets and laptop computers, desktop computers, um, devices that you have never heard of. Somebody could come out with a toaster that has a web browser in it and your website will run on that toaster if you build it in this way, this resilient way, using HTML to do HTML's job, CSS to do CSS's job, and JavaScript just to do the things that you need JavaScript for. Um, and you layer it on top. Uh, so you have the JavaScript come last and do its job last and do just the things that it's really good at and you can build an amazing website that way. Is that what people call a progressive enhancement? Yeah, progressive enhancement is a is a flag that gets flown, a principle around um, the way that a, th a stack gets built, which basically means, uh, you know, sort of think about the worst case scenario first and make sure things are being built really well for that. You don't spend a lot of time there. Uh, 
but you just make sure, you know, if we're going to build a photo sharing website, um, and people, that's the job of the website is to share photos and make sure there's a way for people to upload the photo and, uh, and then see other people's photos using the simplest technology in the stack, which in this case would be HTML. You can just use HTML for that. It would be ugly. It's not going to be the most elegant experience, but it's going to be functional. It's going to work. If for some reason everything else broke, uh, the HTML could get the job done. And then use CSS to style that site and to give it your branding and to make give it some layout and give things uh, a great look and feel. And then use JavaScript to you know, make it so that you don't have to actually click the button in order to upload the image. The moment that you finished this with this other button, it immediately starts uploading. You don't have to push a second button or make it so you don't have to refresh the page in order to see the photo. The page refreshes itself once the photo is done. Um, that kind of stuff. So that sort of interactivity and making a more elegant experience and making it cooler and faster and um, more of a, you know, 2016, 2018 expectation of an experience. Uh, use JavaScript for that. But at the core, at the very beginning, you know, make sure that the, the base functional experience is uh, implemented in HTML by itself so that if the JavaScript falls off, which it does, uh, people can still use your website. Mm-hmm. So this seems to suggest that people need to know all of these things, right? To make a to make an informed decision, you have to know these technologies to decide which one to use. And that suggests that um, while it's perceived by some as purely something for designers to use, it is something that the actual software developers need to be aware of and have to have to be part of their of their uh, of their tool set. Um, now, how much is this true in, in the reverse as well? How much software engineering is there in CSS development or design? There's a couple of good questions in there. Um, one, I do think that everybody who uses JavaScript knows JavaScript and uses JavaScript to make websites. Now, you might use JavaScript to do other things. That's cool. I, I can't really speak to those spaces because what I know is the web. But if you're using JavaScript to make websites, um, I do think you should know HTML and CSS. It, it mystifies me sometimes when I see professional front-end developers who it's their job to implement the front-end of the stack, not the back-end. Again, Node in the back-end, I don't know, maybe it's different. But if you're doing a website and you're, and you're working on the front end, your job is front end developer, front end engineer, and you don't know anything about HTML or CSS, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't hire you. <laughs> like, I don't know how that, that's bad. Um, I think anybody who, that's your job, you know, I, I highly suggest taking the time and going and learning HTML and CSS. Um, start with HTML and just go, you know, there's like 120 something elements. Um, just go learn what they are and learn when to use which one, uh, because it is also declarative. It's, it's easy to learn. You don't, there's no variables in HTML. HTML. There's not a lot of stuff to go and learn, right? You can pick up a great book and learn it in less than a week. Um, and then CSS as well. Uh, I think that Someone who knows HTML and CSS and does not know JavaScript used to be the very definition of a front-end developer. You know, for a long time, we weren't using JavaScript at all because it was so buggy and badly implemented. It only feels like in the last 18 months or two years that knowing JavaScript is starting to feel like a requirement. Um, so I don't know that everybody needs to know the whole thing. I think there are a lot of great people out there who don't know JavaScript. And it's really up to them to figure out where they want their career to go and whether or not learning JavaScript would help them. Uh, I think maybe it could. Uh, I don't know. Um, but when designers, you know, a lot of designers, I mean, or, or I should say before I move back over to the design side, I do think that if usually we work on teams these days or bigger projects have teams, um, a small project of one person who knows HTML and CSS could totally be incredible website, incredibly successful. It's not going to have JavaScript on it because they don't know JavaScript is a small budget website. They probably don't have any budget for anything in JavaScript anyway. Um, or maybe the JavaScript that's getting used is like the JavaScript that came with WordPress or came with Drupal or some plugin that you download and it adds JavaScript. That's cool. That's fine. Um, but when it comes to uh, a bigger team, you've got a big old team you know, the team as a whole, there's someone or overall the group is architecting the entire system. Overall, the group is figuring out 
you know, how are we going to build this? What tools are we going to use? Should we use a framework? And I definitely think that the people who are making those decisions for the team as a whole should understand the entire stack. They should understand the role of these three pieces of the stack and the strengths and the weaknesses of each. And they should architect the system for the whole, you know, multi-million dollar budget or website or whatever they're working on um, with a really great understanding of all three. Uh, I think if, you know, if you're spending $2 million on somebody's website and you only know JavaScript <laughs> and you think HTML and CSS are dumb and you're coming up with the architecture for that giant project, uh, you're probably going to make some bad decisions. You probably need someone on your team who understands all three in order to help you make better decisions. And then your, your question, I think, actually was about designers. Um, you know, there's a debate with designers whether designers need to know anything about the medium that we're working in at all beyond being a user. There are a lot of people who just use websites and then they maybe go to art school or they love graphic design or they, um, you know, maybe they went through some sort of a program where they learned how to be a, a web designer, but they don't know anything about the medium from a author point of view, from a, from a person who makes websites point of view. Um, you know, they don't know what HTML or CSS really is. They don't know, they, they view source on a web page and they freak out and they just want to like close it and go back to drawing pictures in Photoshop. Um, I, I, in a way that's my audience. I feel like I, at a lot of conferences, I speak to those groups of people. I'm trying to convince them that they really, <laughs> you know, if you were a painter, a, a an amazing painter three centuries ago or a sculptor, um, or a true artist, you wouldn't dare not know how to use oil paints or how to use a chisel on a piece of marble. Like you need to know your tools. You need to understand if you take this mallet and you hit that chisel in this particular way, the marble's going to crack in that way. And this kind of marble tends to crack like this and that tends to type of marble tends to crack in this other way and you can see the seam right here and if you hit the chisel in this part of the seam it's going to fall away in this way and if you hit it on that part, you know like there's a way in which if you wanted to be a sculptor in the renaissance era and make something gorgeous you had to understand your medium and so I, I think designers should understand their medium I think they should understand HTML and I, and I think I really if I were going to hire a designer I would only hire designers who know how to write CSS um because then they can work in the medium. They can prototype a website. They, can, they don't need to write production-ready CSS. They may not, it may not be the best from an engineering point of view. They may not know any JavaScript. They, um, but to be able to open up some documents, some empty you know, code text documents and, and just write HTML and CSS and put together a prototype for a design, I find that to be a much better way to really design something than to just open up Photoshop and draw a bunch of photos of what you think you hope the website will look like in the future. <laughs> okay. So maybe, maybe let's go back a bit to, to CSS details yes. uh, and, and talk a bit, but maybe, maybe we, we can start with a little bit of history. I don't, I don't necessarily want to go into a year by year uh, thing, but just some, some major, some of the, maybe the major milestones of the major history, how did it start out and how did it change over the course of time. Yeah, the web was first invented with back in, you know, depending on how you start counting, 93, 94 is when it first launched, 89 is when it first started out as a memo. Um, and it really the only web technology that existed, there was of course the things around the server side and the protocols, but the web technology itself, the, the document that you use, that you make to make a website, HTML, just HTML, um, and that HTML had a particular look to it. The you know, um, there was nothing that, that you could use to make layouts. There were no images; it was just text, um, headlines, and paragraphs, and a few other things. Lists you can make lists. Um, an unordered list would have bullets, or an ordered list would have numbers, and they would get indented, and links would have, be blue and underlined. Right. So there was styling that you would. Um, that would come automatically with your HTML, but it, there wasn't any other kinds of tool right away, at least, to be able to control other things. Uh, all the backgrounds of every website were gray, actually, um, and there were no images. 
And then HTML evolved over time. Uh, and it was, in fact, the reason that HTML could evolve and the reason that CSS could evolve is because they're declarative languages. It's another thing about declarative languages. It makes it really easy to have things change over time. So HTML got things like, uh, now I forget the syntax, actually. I've deleted it from my RAM. <laughs> um, but like uh, <laughs> font, you know, you could set your font size and you could change the font itself or you could set a color, a background color on something. Um, I remember the blink tag. <laughs> the blink tag. Yeah, that was like an element that came with a certain formatting. Images, the fact you could put an image on a page meant people started doing things like typesetting their name of their website or their font of the headline, you know, they typeset the headline for an article using a certain font that was available on their computer but not available on the web. And so then instead of having a real headline in the HTML, you'd have just an image in the HTML, which basically means nothing. Uh, so we already, like right as soon as we had images, we started kind of breaking the like making the web do things that it shouldn't do or making our websites do things that was against the nature of the web itself, uh, breaking the inherent flexibility and accessibility of the web by doing things that now we recognize as bad practices. Uh, but we, so we, HTML evolved and it got all these font, you know, to all these different tags, all these formatting tags. Uh, we started using tables to do layout, right? Cause that's all we had. And uh, the, one of the problems with it is that there were many, but one of them is that if you wanted to change the font, you had to go in on every single solitary paragraph and put one of these little font tags that said, or font attributes on your paragraph tag that said, I, I want it to be Times New Roman. And so you just do that over and over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and there was no way to sort of set that universally and have it be everywhere. You had to keep you had to get interjected into every paragraph separately. Uh, and so we, and CSS got invented. So CSS, it was sort of like we needed it. It didn't exist at first. After many years, people came along and said, hey, you know what? We actually need this thing. Um, and so it got invented. And I, I, people can look up all the details. I actually don't have the whole history of how it was exactly how it evolved and all that. Um, but it, it has changed quite a bit over time. You know, there was sort of CSS as it got started and then CSS, it was around the days of CSS2 that it became really um, usable. Uh, CSS2 was sort of everything really usable in CSS. And the industry itself kind of switched over to using CSS instead of using HTML um, tags or attributes in the tags. Uh, in the early 2000s, 2001, 2003, 2004, we went through this whole kind of nerd war debating whether or not we should stop using tables for layout and start using CSS for layout. Uh, it took a, quite a lot of convincing. It took, it took a decade, basically, of education and convincing people to separate their HTML and their CSS, to put the styling in the CSS, to not put any styling in HTML, to have the HTML be semantic, you could theoretically completely change the way a website looks. Maybe you have a website that's been running for 10 years. You come along, you rebrand your company. You want to change everything about how that website looks. If it's built properly, according to how we understand things today, that HTML probably won't need to be changed at all. Ideally, it doesn't. And you only need to change your CSS. And by swapping out your CSS, you get a completely different look. Uh, and it's, it's part of what's so frustrating about what's happening right now with people who are giant fans of JavaScript is that they're, I, I guess it's because there's a younger, I mean, we've been around, some of us have been around doing this long enough now that there's a whole new generation of people coming along who were not alive when these nerd wars were fought or they were kids, they were toddlers or something. They were not involved in making websites. So they don't know. They have no idea that we already went down this road. The original idea about how to style a website was to put the styling in the markup and to put it on every single solitary thing all over the place. And we, we learned very painfully why that wasn't a good idea. And we came up with a whole new way to do it, to universalize our styling and to put it in a special place so that the entire website can just go to that one place and get all the styling. You can change it in one place and there it is. And now these... Uh, these kids today with their JavaScript, uh, they're interjecting, they're doing like styling in JavaScript and having JavaScript interject 
inline styles into every single element separately. Uh, it's CSS instead of HTML stuff, but it's the same thing. It's the same bad architecture. It's the same bad idea for the same exact bad reasons. Um, and, 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 and I think I actually, I, I spoke to, um, somebody who, who had built one of these tools for a framework, a very famous tool for a very famous framework, uh, to do inline styles, to interject all the styles into the, into the HTML. And he was like, yeah, now that his tool is insanely popular and he's been working on it for several years, he's like, yeah, I kind of, I actually have changed my mind. I see now why inline styles are a bad idea. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I don't know. Back to the history of CSS. I feel like it's it, oh, so CSS three came along. Um, probably probably people who are familiar at all with the web heard about CSS three um, when a lot of new there's there's a lot of stagnation for a while in the two thousands. We we put a lot of effort into switching to CSS and then things just sort of stagnated for a while. But then a uh, new effort came along around CSS3, a lot of new properties showing up. You could do a lot of things in CSS that we've been wanting to do for a long time, like rounded corners that you had to kind of do weird hacky things. Then you got web fonts, so you don't have to put your, um, your text in a picture anymore, in an image. You just let your text be real text, and you can add a font, of any particular font you want that you have a license for, to your website, and then you can... Uh, have real text be whatever, you know, look a certain way, not just be these same five fonts that we had. Um, yeah. So, and then CSS has gotten so complicated as they stopped having one specification because the CSS level one, CSS level two, CSS level three, were all kind of everything about CSS in one specification. Um, the specifications got so complicated and big with CSS three that they, the CSS working group has split it out into a bunch of separate specs um, so now you have a whole bunch of different specs who that each are at a different whatever level that they're at. And there's more. There's more coming. There's like more and more and more and more CSS all the time coming. So I think most people now take web fonts, for example, for granted and, and uh, rounded corners and uh, I don't know, um, some of the stuff that basically every website uses these days. But what are some of the newer things that are just emerging as or just becoming available and usable? Yeah, uh, you know, when this new energy, this new group of people kind of got involved with CSS, um, they intentionally tackled some of the easier things first, things that, that people desperately needed and wanted, like rounded corners, because they were technically simpler. And then once those were kind of done, uh, they were able to start tackling the more complicated things, which are all about page layout. Um, we've never really had proper tools for page layout on the web. We started out by using tables to sort of force the browser to do some sort of layout. And we switched to doing floats when we switched to CSS. Um, floats are a great technology. Basically, you take a thing and you sort of float it and the other things that can come after it wrap around it. That's great. We should keep using that tool. We will keep using that tool. But it, what we started using that tool for is not what it was intended for, which is to like float a sidebar around a main content column and to maybe make the footer not be on top of the column. So you have to do this hack and then, oh, you do this other hack and that only works in certain browsers. So for this other browser, you're going to do this other thing. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that people hate CSS is because uh, trying to get CSS to do things that it, to you know, again, if you need a hammer and instead you have a, a knife, like that's not a hammer. Like, so CSS um, has not had layout tools, proper layout tools for a long time. And it became, it was hard. Uh, and browsers were inconsistent about their implementations. So, you know, if three different browsers that were important had slightly different ways that they rendered and understood your CSS. That was really annoying. Uh, but a lot of that's gone. A lot of that inconsistency is now completely gone. Um, it's very, CSS works pretty much exactly the same way in every browser these days. Uh, and now we have tools for layout. Um, Flexbox is a big one. You can do a lot of great things with Flexbox. And uh, sometime this year, I hope, or if not, then early next year, CSS Grid will ship. CSS Grid layout. 
which will completely change the way that everybody does layout. I think we're going to drop basically every tool that we're using for layout and switch to CSS grid layout um, and be able to do some amazing designs that up until now have been completely impossible. So can, can you talk a bit about what grid layout does? Yeah, so if anybody has been trying to do page layout for in CSS the last five years, you've probably been using a framework. You've probably been using... Um, 960.js was popular for a while, um, but then when responsive design came along, we all sort of reached for different tools. A lot of people use the layout framework that's in Bootstrap. Uh, Foundation has its own as well. And then there's a bunch of just standalone layout frameworks. But every single one of them basically does exactly the same thing, which is they break the space into 12 columns, 12 equal-sized columns, all, you know, it, as any one of those columns gets bigger, the other columns are all also getting bigger by the exact same amount. And then it uh, asks you, it offers you the chance to place items on those lines, uh, boxes. So you just make rows of boxes. So everything is a row of boxes on a 12 columns um, grid. And Visually, that's incredibly boring. We every website has this header on the top with the name of the website and the tech and the navigation in a in a thin long line, and then it's got a big content column that's not really as big as it could be or should be. And you want to look at photos, but they're kind of small. And then you get this sidebar that's like full of junk and ads that you never ever ever look at. And then down at the bottom, you got like crap upon more crap upon more stuff you don't want to look at, right? Like so many websites are done that way. Um, and in part they're done that way because of uh, convention, design conventions, but in part they're done that way because that's what the tools that we have have been wanting to make us do. And grid layout, grid layout has some of that in it. You could do that layout in grid layout very easily, actually. You don't need a framework anymore. Um, we'll be able to drop and dump our framework tools, which will be great. And if you want to do a 12 column, you know, columnar grid where they're all the same width as each other, you can do that. That's cool. But if you want to do 11 or nine columns, that's also pretty cool. If you want, rather than your columns being the same exact width as each other, you want to base them off of a golden ratio or some other kind of mathematical array, you could do that. Uh, grid will also, CSS Grid will let us do rows and you'll be able to define rows, which we've never been able to do in CSS. Uh, it's something we did in HTML tables, but when we dropped it, with, when HTML tables went away. Um, and by defining rows, you can place things Everything doesn't have to be sort of jammed up against the top of the page and or jammed up against the thing that came before it. Uh, you can we can use white space. We could you could put an item sort of near the top of the page and then put the second item kind of much further down the page. Uh, you can place things on diagonals. You can really visually do m things that are much more interesting, much different than what we're used to. And that excites me both as a, as a designer, as an artist, because I'm just tired of seeing all the junk, but also as a person who um, cares about providing a strategic advantage to clients because you can really create a fresh experience where people go to the website and they're like, oh, wow, ooh, what's going on here? I'm going to pay attention. Wait, what's the name of this website? Maybe I'll come back here again. This is interesting. We haven't had that feeling in a long time. Uh, and I hope we do again. I hope we're able to break through the pressure to just do the same crap and do some much more interesting things. So how long will it take until uh, this is actually usable by people in practice because of the browser adoption and, and usability? Yeah, so the way that CSS has evolved, uh, and really a lot of web technologies, it's changed quite a bit. Uh, in the past, when a new property came out, um, it kind of went into browsers right away, uh, but it would be in one browser and not the other, and that was annoying, and it would um, be inconsistent, and all the bugs. These days, the way it happens is... All of the browsers are working on their implementation, what's, it's called behind a flag, which means 
it's in the browser. I mean, you could oh, you could download Chrome, Firefox, Safari right now, and they have the new version of CSS Grid implemented already in the browser. But it doesn't actually work, and it won't work unless you go into a special secret place and you click a button. Um, you check a checkbox, uh, which is called a flag. So you have to go into, and I forget, honestly, the syntax, but it's like about colon slash slash flags in one of the browsers, maybe, or some other sort of thing. Like you type these magic words into the browser, into the um, where you would normally put a URL in the brow- in the toolbar. And, uh, and it opens up this, you didn't know it was there, but hey, there's this whole like super long list of crazy checkbox of experimental features that only people who make browsers are going to know to turn on and off or people who are really good at making websites know to turn on and off. And um, so if you want to try Grid out, if you want to make a web page and see what Grid does, you can um, do that as a, as a person who's a geek. You can uh, write code and see how it's working. Uh, and and so the browser makers are able to, all four of them, Edge is working on this as well, although it's a little bit different for them because they, they invented this technology and they already put it into their browser years ago, although the specification changed since then. So they need to update their implementation uh, and they will once the spec is, is once things are a little fin- more finished. Uh, but the But you can... What this means is that there are people who don't make browsers trying this out. Myself, I'm one of those people making websites, making demos, making examples. Um, you can't ship it on a website unless you know your audience is going to all turn on their flags, which they, they're not. So, and that sounds a little bit odd, but this is actually a really, really good way. It's the best, it's, I don't know, the third, we keep... The, over time, the way that this works has evolved. This so far is the best way for it to work. And there are downsides to it, but it's still also really great. Because what it means is that once all the browser makers feel like they're really done, and we all agree that everybody's done, uh, or that the spec is done. Because what's happened is, you have an idea, right? So the people who invent this stuff, especially the complicated stuff, this is true. You invent this stuff you, by writing it in a specification and say, I think this is what we should invent. I think this is how it should work. Here's the syntax. Here are the ideas. Here's how the bug should work. Um, here's what should happen when it's broken. Uh, everybody build this into your browser exactly like this so that it's the same everywhere. This is why we have a standard. This is why we have a specification. And uh, on a simple technology, everybody can go, okay, I understand that in my head. Let's do it, and the, everybody does it, and it works. But in a complicated thing, they started implementing this technology, and then you have it running code, and you can write, make running code, and you can try it out, and you can say, oh, I like this, except it's not quite what we're going to really want. What we're really going to want is we're going to want to have gaps. So they added grid gaps. Oh, what we really want, oh, this text doesn't make any sense. It seems like it was going to make sense, but when you start actually using it, it doesn't make any sense. We need to change it. Um, so over the last two years, there's been this kind of dialogue between the browser makers and between people who make websites, uh, trying it out, actually building real websites, changing it, trying it out again, changing it a little bit more, trying it again. Um, and the implementations have been happening all, I mean, seems like in secret, it's not really in secret, but in a, in a level of nerddom that most people don't know about it. Uh, but it, what it means is that the specs are, the spec has been tested and thought out and changed and evolved. And it means that the browsers are nailing their implementations. They're really going to get them correct before they ship them. And then they're going to ship them. And all they have to do to ship them is just change the flag state and make it turn it on by default rather than off by default. Um, so I expect once it comes out, it's going to come out very quickly. I think all the browsers are going to ship it. Uh, I mean, sometimes it's been years. You know, one browser ships something and it's years before the other browser ships something. That's not going to be the case here. Um, I don't know if they'll come out. It'd be so fun if they all came out on the same day or the same week. I, I think that's a fantasy. Um, but maybe within the same three or four months or the same six months. It's going to feel like they all came out at the same time, I think, uh, once people start waking up to the fact that Grid exists. Uh, and then we'll be able to use it. I mean, of course, there'll be some users who still have older browsers around and we'll have to think about them. But uh, the way that browsers work today, all of the browsers automatically update themselves except for Internet Explorer. Oh, Safari doesn't yet either, but I bet you that's going to change. Um, so Safari and IE, like IE will never get Grid uh, 
but hopefully fewer and fewer people will use IE. Everybody will be using Edge instead. And um, I, Safari, Safari's on top of this as well, so I think it's going to happen. But there's no real fallback strategy. As For example, with JavaScript APIs, if there's a newer JavaScript API, there's a chance of having uh, a, a native JavaScript implementation of that browser feature or polyfill that will just emulate the JavaScript behavior. But there's no such thing for CSS, right? If I use grid layout, I'm relying on the browser to support grid layout. Or is there a way to achieve something like a like a fallback uh, fallback layout option for older browsers. There's always ways to do fallbacks. Um, with simpler technology, you can frequently just say, oh, it doesn't work. Okay, no big deal. CSS shapes, for example. CSS shapes. Or rounded corners. Or rounded corners. They only work in, like rounded corners now work in pretty much every browser, but CSS shapes only work in like half the browsers. So, or rounded corners used to only work in half the browsers. Um, so your so you're, you're corner square or your shape, your text doesn't flow around your item in a in a cool circle or a polygon or something. It it it, it wraps around it in a square. Um, it's one of the things that uh, is really beautiful about the declarative language. It, it, when the old browsers see a line of code that they don't understand, they just skip it, and the rest of the code gets parsed. Um, but with something like the entire page layout, uh, you have to think about well, what does it mean if a browser skips all of the lines of code for grid that it doesn't understand. There are other lines of code in there that it does understand, like margins, and maybe I put a background on here or something. I did this thing. I'd put this line over here, and I did this box over there because I expected the grid layout to work. So there's probably a bunch of code that you don't want to run in a browser that's not going to be able to run the grid layout. And there is probably also some code that you would like to run only in browsers who don't understand grid. And you give them a separate layout. You know, give them a simple layout. Give them just sort of all the stuff in one big long column and make it readable and usable and don't worry about the rest of it. Um, and so there is a property called um, a feature query that's a little test. Uh, you write the syntax at supports and a curly, open curly bracket and you can put whatever you want in there. So at supports display grid. You know, if you just if you understand display grid, then I want you to run this code. Um, if you do not understand display grid, then I want you to run this other code. Or here's the default for the people who don't understand display grid and do not understand a feature query. And then here is a feature query that says, okay, now that you understand this feature query and you understand display grid, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do all this code in here. Um, so it's just about architecting your code so that it makes sense, that it's going to work. Um, taking a little bit of time to think through the experience of different kinds of browsers and then uh, shipping it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, you, you, it's interesting that you mentioned the word architecting the code. Right? Because yeah. I think that is that is one thing that I've found in, 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 in projects over the last few years that there really is an architecture to this whole thing in every in every single project. And if you rely on... If, you, if the only people you have in a project that know what CSS is are people who just basically are Photoshop experts, mm. then it's really going to be a problem. So you need to have somebody who understands both the idea of architecture and modularity as well as um, the design aspects, at least the technical parts of the design aspects. Maybe they don't have to be the best visual designer, but they definitely have to be the experts in these technologies. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another reason why CSS maybe gets a bad rap is because people experience really badly written CSS. Mm -hmm. Like every programming language is horrible when you do a horrible job with it. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you, uh, the thing I wanted to ask you is what do you think of all those uh, uh, preprocessor options? Like, uh, Can you briefly explain them and can you give us your opinion of those, of those things? Yeah, so... Um, Preprocessors, they came along like any, there's so many different kinds of third-party tools that help they help us out and we use them and we don't use them and we try them on a project and sometimes we find one that we really like and we keep using it. Um, Less and SAS came along a lot like that, uh, I don't know, now almost 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago. And over time, more and more and more people started 
using them for every project. Uh, and SaaS became the f industry favorite beating out less and beating out any other competitors that came along. So at this point, I mean, if I'm at a conference or in a big group of people and someone says, you know, big group of front end developers and someone says, who here uses, how many of you use SaaS? Um, usually 80 or 90% of the room will raise their hands. Um, it seems to be very, very common and very much a tool that everybody's using. So what it does is a preprocessor, meaning, um, so if I'm using it, I, instead of writing CSS directly into a CSS style sheet, I write SAS, which is basically CSS, into a SAS style sheet, um, slightly different, uh, instead of being a .css file, it's a .scss file. And then I have a little tool. A lot of people use a command line. I like avoiding the command line when I'm designing because I like to think visually and I don't want to have to think in uh, words on a command line. So I use a tool called CodeKit, which is a really fabulous GUI for basically a command line. <laughs> it does lots of things. And one of the things it does is it runs a SAS. So however you do it, there are many ways to do it. Some people use Gulp or Grunt or another kind of build tool. Um, there's a build step uh, you save the SAS file and it gets built into a CSS file. So as the engineer, I never touch the CSS files. I touch the SAS files and SAS makes the CSS files for me. And by having this extra step in there, um, there's a whole bunch of different things that SAS can do that are not in CSS itself. The output is CSS, so it's not changing what the browsers are doing. The browsers don't need to support SAS. Uh, there's nothing that SAS can do that isn't in CSS, right? So rounded corners it work in SAS because rounded corners work in CSS. If grid doesn't work uh, over here, grid's, you know, SAS isn't going to be able to do anything about that. Um, what it does is it gives me a, tools to make it easier to write CSS. Uh, so nesting is one of my favorites. You can nest stuff. Uh, and you have to be careful because you don't want to nest too much stuff. If you nest things too much, then it becomes the cascade gets really out of hand. Uh, so again, you got to be smart. You got to use good architectural principles. But uh, nesting is handy. It's very handy to be able to sort of nest selectors. Um, you can create variables and have a variable. You can define, say, some colors at the top of your cascade, at the top of your file, or in another file, and make sure your files load in a certain order. And get your uh, so your variables are defined at the beginning, and then um, if you want to use them universally, you also don't have to use them universally. You can use them locally, but it's nice because then you you know maybe you have a certain shade of red, and but marketing is still working on the branding, and you've written all this CSS. You got a couple thousand lines of CSS, and then they change the color of red. Just change it in one place, and bam, it's changed. Um, or, you know, if you're designing in code, which I do a lot, and I think I like the red, but I change my mind, and next week I want to see what blue looks like, I can change it in one place and it changes it everywhere. Um, there's some other things that are, you know, they're very simple tools, and probably people who are more used to writing uh, kind of hardcore, would you call it hardcore programming languages, um, would go, well, how come we didn't have that before? That's not a real programming language. Like, uh, yeah. And there are some things that are getting pulled into um, pulled into CSS proper uh, because it's become so popular in the industry. Um, CSS is going to have variables or does already have variables. Uh, I forget. Um, which will work differently because SAS variables are really just for handling um, creating some efficiency in writing the code itself. But CSS variables will be able to take inputs from the user from in the front end, you know, on the front end in real time. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, but SAS, SAS is pretty great. There's other things I'm forgetting right now that it does that is that are pretty handy. But um, oh, it, it lets you make it lets you create a whole bunch of separate files, which is a you see a lot in kind of more Unixy worlds. Well, you know, lots of short files, so it can be much easier to keep your code organized and much easier to keep track of where things are because you just sort of put all the typography in a typography file and all the layout in a layout file and all the code for the styling the events in the file called events and all the code for styling the news in this file called news or however you want to do it. Um, but then in the end, all of it gets concatenated into one style sheet, which is better, at least for HTTP 1, much better performance 
Um, and it will also compress your CSS and remove all the white space, remove all the comments and things so that the CSS files themselves are as fast and tight as possible. Well, meanwhile, the code that the engineers actually handle and touch and read is much more expanded and more you know, easier to understand, like to find stuff. You're not scrolling through 6,000 6, lines of CSS. You're actually able to just open up a file that has 100 lines and read it and do what you need to and get back out again. SAS has extensibility in it. You can write your own mix-ins. You can write your own where, um, what's a mix-in? A mix-in is like, you know, if you find yourself repeating yourself and you have the same kind of eight lines of code that you need to use over and over again, you can turn that into a thing and then you can call that thing somewhere else. Uh, clear fix is a trick that you do all the time that you're like, oh, I need a clear fix. So there's nothing in CSS for doing clear fix. It's actually like six hacky lines of code that's a total hack but a very helpful hack and so you just turn that into a mix-in and instead of having to write or remember those six weird lines of code every time you just say at include clear fix and bam sas will, will go get those six lines of code for you um, and i think i've used a clear fix hack on every website i've worked on in the last 10 years or 15 years so like why do i need to remember how to write that just give me a mix-in for it now i'm curious what is the clear fix hack what does it do uh, Clarefix hack is, um, <laughs> it has to do with using floats. Uh, if you float um, like a bunch of things, when you float something, it takes it out of the f direct flow of the document. And so something else could come along and end up on top of that thing in a way that you really did not intend. And so you can apply, um, it also, it, the things that come after it, you can say clear both or clear left, clear right, and it will clear the stuff that's above it but the thing that got floated if it's a container itself the objects inside of that container might not like the, the height of that container should be bigger than everything inside of it but it's not and so uh it's just a way to force a container to recognize a height for the stuff that's inside of it instead of being too short Damn, you've made, you made such a great job of improving CSS's reputation and now I've ruined it all. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> I know, but it's a hack. I mean, that's a perfect example of like, we were using floats to do something that they were never intended for. And that was, that stinks. It's hard. And so over the last decade, we come up with these tools and the tools really help. And so I don't have to figure that out. Like, I, I have a hard time, it probably... I screwed up my explanation of it because I don't quite understand it because I don't need to understand it anymore. I used to need, now I'm just like, whatever, add it, add include clear fix. I think that will fix. Oh, look, it fixed it. I'm done. Right. Like, mm -hmm. uh, but better than that is I'm going to use grid layout. I'm going to use Flexbox. Like there is no clear fix hack needed inside of Flexbox. It's part of what's so beautiful about Flexbox is it gets rid of all these clearing and this height stuff. That's also crazy. Um, and we can stop using broken tools for something they were never intended for and start actually having a real layout system in CSS. Mm -hmm. But that's true in every language. Every language has its edge that like you wanted to do this thing and it doesn't. And so you have this hack and you make it do that. Every language has that. So oh, I agree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. So I think that was an that was an um, awesome awesome set of answers. Uh, do you have some good resources to point people to if they want to if they want to brush up on their CSS skills? What's a good way to start? That is a good question. Um, I will have to. I'll get you a little list of links and we can put them in your show notes. Um, okay. I know one book that I really, if books are a way for people, if you enjoy learning by books, there's a book by Jen Robbins called um, Learning HTML. Let me look. What's it called? Uh, I think it's called I think it's called Learning HTML. I was looking forward to my bookshelf. Mm -hmm. We'll find it. Link it. Yeah, Jen Robbins. Um, it's an O'Reilly book. It's really good at teaching you HTML and CSS from scratch if you've never known it without insulting you as someone who's just kind of dumb. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I find that rare because lots of times the beginner books are for real beginners and it's hard to find a book that can respect the fact you have a programmer's mind, you know what a code editor is, you've already got like, you, you know, and you just want to learn the HTML and the CSS. It does have some of that stuff in there. I mean, it does teach people how to like where to write code if they never have before. Um, but it also has a lot of great, like it tells you what SAS is or it tells you what keeps, it gives you a picture of the whole landscape. 
Um, there's also uh, a book apart has great books. There's one uh, HTML5. That's a great little starter book for HTML. Um, book number one, Jeremy Keith. They just put out a new edition of it. So it's all updated, fresh and new. Um, really, really good. And I know they have a CSS book or two as well that I would highly recommend. There's a book on SAS. Uh, and the uh, book of art books are good because they're very, very short. They're like, you, we know you're busy and we know you have client work and you just want to learn this one thing. Here's how to use SAS. Or here's all the new elements in HTML and you're not really sure which one to use for what. Here's the deal. Here's what you need to know. Um, they're great little reference guides. Easy to read. Uh, powerful. Um, and then, of course, CSS Tricks is a great website, css-tricks.com. Um, probably if you ever do a search online for... Uh, anything in CSS, it's going to come up as your number one or number two, number three results because it's super power, power, um, popular. Good blog posts, good, good reference guide. Um, of course, MDN, the Mozilla Developer Network website, is probably uh, if if anyone who's listening, it, it works on the web. You're like, duh. <laughs> <laughs> MDN is the Wikipedia of web technology. Like, you need to know what something is. You need to remember that JavaScript API. You need to remember that HTML element. You need to know that that C which CSS property is that again. I remember the property, but I don't remember the attributes. Is it? Is it? What is the thing called? Like just MDN. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. So, Jen, that was awesome. Thank you so much for having been on the show. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks to your listeners for listening, and uh, bye. <laughs>